Amen. Well, good morning again. If you're just joining us, I know sometimes a live stream you takes a minute to get caught up. We're glad you're here. We're in Isaiah chapter 61 this morning as we work our way towards the end of Isaiah. We will have spent roughly a year and a half with just a couple short breaks uh, in Isaiah, most of 2019 and then probably half of this year. And as we've been in Isaiah, what we've, we've seen is the overarching uh, meta-narrative, the big picture, if you will, that Isaiah is telling. And in his opening 39 chapters, he is, he is calling out to God's people on behalf of God. Isaiah is a prophet, and functionally, a prophet is someone who speaks God's word with God's authority. And with that what Isaiah is doing is he is speaking on behalf of God to God's people. That's important for us this morning because we need to know that God is speaking for us, to us, for us, right? So he is speaking to us, and it is about us changing. It isn't to us for them, right? We're not trying to fix the rest of the planet. We're trying to really repent and fix ourselves, that we would turn to Jesus, and by doing so, we would live out our faith and others would see Jesus, and so that's the first 39 chapters that Isaiah uh, proclaims to the people, and he calls out to the different cultures and nations, and he, he really is calling out the people of God that their heart is, or their desire, their effort is at the current time to look like the world around them. Modern day parallel, as we look at ourselves, the American Western church in the U.S., how how we look like the rest of the nation, how we look and sound and speak like the nation we live in. On social media, we look like everybody else. We talk like everybody else. We post many of the same things everybody else does with a verse thrown in here or there. So Isaiah pivots from that, you look just like the world around you message to a center part, the 40 through 50 55, excuse me, and he, he leans into the solution, and, and God proclaims clearly through Isaiah several hundred years before Jesus entered into human history that Jesus, the Redeemer, will come, and he will come and he will redeem people. In other words, he will take what was once unusable, and he will make it useful for the kingdom. So as God says, hey, listen, here's your problem, here's the sin, you, you look like the world you live in, I want you to look like Jesus. Jesus is going to come and he's going to fix that, he's going to redeem a people. And then on the backside, as we look at 56 through 66, where we are right now, God says, I want to pour out revival on my people, on the church. And he says, here's what's standing in the way. You still look like the world around you, but I've provided you a solution. Now begin to walk in Christ. And so that's where we are, Isaiah chapter 61. But I want to begin this morning by reading some words uh, that Jesus says in Luke chapter 4. And you'll see this on the screen. It says this, and Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
This is how Jesus chooses to begin his ministry. He opens with a quote from Luke. He, he begins, uh, I'm sorry, he opens with a quote from Isaiah as Luke records his beginning of ministry. And he reads from Isaiah 61, our text today, the verses we're going to read in just a minute. And then literally on the end of reading these words, Jesus just kind of mic drops it right in front of everybody. And he says, today, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says, today, I have fulfilled those words in your presence. Right here, right now, I'm the one Isaiah was telling you about. And so that's how Jesus begins his ministry. He, he opens up with a quotation from Isaiah. And as we began the book of Isaiah, and we've said many times, Isaiah is like a gospel telling of Jesus before it happened. That he proclaims Jesus so clearly, so many years in advance, it's been one of the most highly disputed books of the Bible until they found whole copies of it buried in the ground hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Taking away any doubt that it was God who proclaimed these words. And so as a starting idea today, we'll put this on the screen, the Redeemer and his people. So Isaiah teaches us about Jesus and his mission to bring his kingdom to earth today, as well as what the church living in the kingdom should be. Isaiah teaches us about Jesus and his mission to bring his kingdom to earth today. We can live. We are part of that kingdom today. And then he gives us an idea of what the church should be doing and should look like. And so that's our job today is to understand that and apply it to ourselves. Will you pray with me? God, as we gather this morning, first and foremost, I pray that I would get out of the way, Jesus, and that you would come and speak. Let me fade to the back. Will you take your rightful place, up, uh, rightful place up front, speaking to us because we're your church? Jesus, your words give us life. They transform our hearts. They change things. My words do nothing. And so will you, will you give me your words? Will you speak to your church? Generations Church, this is your church, Jesus' church. And we want to hear those words today. God, I thank you for your servant Isaiah, who hundreds of years before Jesus entered into our story in flesh, proclaim these words, and these words are as relevant today as they were almost 3,000 years ago. God, thank you that your word is living and active. Thank you that, that the human heart, the human soul, the human life is so consistently broken that we get to see it over and over again. We can learn from history. Help us to be a generation of change where we submit ourselves to you and we become more like you. Help us to abandon the world we live in, abandon following their ways and their voice and their speaking, their solutions. Help us to begin to look like you and yet live here so that others can see you. Help us to live our faith in you, to live out righteousness and justice, to live out peace so that others will ask the question, why do you live the way you live? And we can say, let me tell you about Jesus. So Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 61 is where we are. Verse 1 says this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah writes these words that Jesus will speak. He writes these words in advance, telling us who Jesus will be, what even Jesus will say. Jesus leads his ministry off by saying these words. Isaiah gives us a messianic look forward. He gives us an image of what Jesus will come to be and to do. He says that, that the focus of Jesus and his kingdom will be bringing good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, opening the prison of those who are bound. Jesus talks about liberty for the oppressed. Same idea. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, proclaiming the day of vengeance of our God. Note that it is God's vengeance on evil and injustice, not our own vengeance on them. And then finally, to comfort all who mourn. For those of you who are note takers, again, all these notes are on our app under the notes section. Uh, we know you can't copy them down. And if you're live streaming on a phone, for sure, really hard to see all of this. And so just as you know, uh, our notes are there for you. But here's one for you. The kingdom of Jesus. Isaiah speaks so clearly about Jesus and his kingdom that Jesus himself begins his ministry by quoting him. Contrast binding up the brokenhearted and good news to the poor with American Christianity. Ask ourselves, how are we doing? Where are we? Do we, are we as a church, the church in America, when we kind of summarize the church, even when we just kind of summarize who Generations is, are we noted for binding up the broken, for good news to marginalized people? Are we, are we known for setting people free who are captive to things in their lives or, or, or things around them? Are we people who are giving new life to people? Are, is the church in America known for righteousness and freedom and peace, giving people the freedom in Christ, not the freedom given to us in our country, it's different but the freedom of Christ, the, the liberation from oppression and sin and pain. Are we known for that? Are we known for something very different? I would suggest in America, we're known for something incredibly different and that we look like the world around us. That's what Isaiah has been saying all along. Verse three, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So why is Jesus saying he will do all this? What, what is the purpose of the kingdom? What is, what is the role of the church in that kingdom? As he talks about planting oaks of righteousness, strength found in righteousness, why comfort all who mourn and give gladness instead of mourning? Jesus is proclaiming something that is counterintuitive to many of us. He's saying, listen, I'm going to bind up broken people. I'm going to restore broken people. I'm going to take weak people and I'm going to heal them and make them strong. And from them, I will create my kingdom. You see, if we were going to build a kingdom, we, we tend to want to start with the strong, the powerful. Jesus says, I'll start with the weak and the marginalized. I will start with the unlikely so that you will know that it is me. Jesus, as he sets forth the kingdom in motion, says, listen, I will take the nobodies and I will change the world as long as they look to me. 
And so as a church, we, we must set ourselves aside. We must set human solutions aside. We must set human ways of doing things, and we must submit ourselves to Jesus, that we become nobodies because Jesus is the only somebody. And that we would learn to follow Jesus in that way. Verse 4, now it shifts to kind of the people in the kingdom. First, who Jesus is, now the people in the kingdom. Verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins and they shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. The they in that sentence is the broken or the marginalized or those who have been redeemed. And what is their mission? It's to build up and repair ruined cities, build up and repair what the world has built. In other words, what humanity has built is broken, right? We live in a world right now where, where stuff is broken, right? We, no one thinks right now the entirety of the world is in the right direction. We're suffering through a global pandemic where nations around the world are locked down, where we ourselves are limited in some things. We're doing that as we see cases rise and as we've seen the numbers of people who have died and, and, and the situation around us, it's really something beyond our control. As we look at the protests and the racial unrest and the pain that people are feeling and the, the way that they're acting out and the things that are going on, we realize, okay, this is bigger than us. And we recognize if we're Christians and we just trace this all the way back through history, we, we realize that this is what happens when humanity sins and separates its, ourselves from God. And that the only solution is to redeem that, to, to, to seal those things back up, to put those things back together. And so in the church, what we hope for is a redemption. Think all the way back to the garden and think as God, as God himself commissions Adam, humanity has been created, Adam's there in the garden, and God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Really, the commission is to go and to make cities, to go and build and to go become a great big people. But the understanding is a great big people who worship God, who live to fulfill the mission of God. And instead, sin comes in and separates us from God, and man begins to build his own city. Augustine talked a lot about the city of man and the city of God. We've seen that also that comes from Isaiah. The humanity is trying to build a city to themselves and to human ways, and God is saying, no, that's broken. Build you, what you must build is, is my kingdom, my city. And we have this tale of two cities, if you will. And then those of us, those of us who proclaim Christ, those of us who are part of the church, those of us who follow Jesus day to day as our all and all and everything, we are to leave the city of man and to become a part of the city of God. Even though we stay living in the same place, we become a part of the kingdom. And then we live that here so that others might see, might see Jesus through us. Verse 5, it says, Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. This is a, a blessing that comes on those who are following Jesus, right? The tangible blessing to the people. But, but don't just hear the blessing. Hear what it requires. It's, it's here's what you get, but here's why. And here's what you must do. Verse 6 says this, But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, you shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. 
They shall have everlasting joy. So here's, here's the calling. God saying, I want to bless you. And he used the language of priesthood. And, and priests, uh, the Levites in the Old Testament, the, the people who were priests, they were to receive a double portion. There was a benefit there was also a deficit. They didn't own land. They didn't own things. They, they were not to be of this world. They were to be of something different. And even amongst all of God's people, they were to live distinctly. And really, their role was one of a mediator. And God says, I will promise to bless you. I will promise. In the long run, you will get double. But you're to be a priest. And I'll put this on the screen, but here's how we, do, here's how we define priests. Old Testament priests typically did two things to bring, the God, bring God to the people and the people to God. Priests are mediators who strive to connect God and his people. We in the church need to be more like that today. So here's what you need to hear. God says, I want to bless you as a church, as a people, as mine. I want to bless you. In fact, I want to give you more than you even anticipate or want or expect. I want to shower out blessings on you. And, but that will come when you live in ways that I've called you to live, not when you live like the world around you. In fact, I want you to become priests. I want you to understand the idea of your role, that you live in the in-between. You live in the now and the not yet. You live in my kingdom, but you still live here on earth. You live in a place that is not redeemed yet. You live in my kingdom even though you live here on earth. And, and I want you to not take stock in what's here on earth. I want you to, to, to distance yourself between what is earthly and what is eternal. He says, and I will give you a double blessing. I will pour out more on you. But you've got to abandon the idea that what this world wants and what this world does is the way that I will accomplish it. You see, priests are mediators. They become the, the, the in-between for people. They bring people to God and they bring God to the people. They bring God to the people by living righteousness and justice, by living distinctly from culture. They show the gospel. They show Jesus to people. And then when people begin to ask and, and when those conversations arise, they bring the people to God. They, they share the gospel with them. They tell them about a Jesus who has lived and died and rose again, about a Jesus who gives new life, about a Jesus who empowers us with his gospel through his spirit, so that we can live as a distinct people, that we can live in this world, but not of this world, that we can live here on this planet, but know that this is not how it's supposed to be, that the kingdom is to take root here. Verse 8, it says, for I, the Lord, love justice. Here's Jesus telling you, I love justice. He says, I hate robbery and wrong. I will, give faith, I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Remember the them are the redeemed. That can be us, those who are following Jesus, those who are not tied to this world but are tethered to eternity. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, verse 8. Verse 9, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples who see them. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Note that the people are an offspring of Jesus, that they are an offspring of the Lord whom he has blessed. They live distinctly. They will see you among the peoples. One of the most powerful things I learned going through this last part of Isaiah is when God proclaims over the church 
that the righteous men and women have left, that the righteous people have died off and nobody even misses them. That those who do what is distinctly right and distinctly different from this world, they are disappearing and the church isn't even longing for them. That God's people isn't even missing them, aren't even missing them the way we should. That we don't long for a godly voice because we're so used to longing for human, earthly, political, powerful, popular voices. God says, you will be a distinct people. Jesus says, I love, I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. The robbery and wrong that Jesus is talking about is where the powerful rule the weak, where those who have power use it and exert it over the weak, rather than a world of social equity and generosity. So Jesus promises redemption. Jesus calls out and proclaims redemption that those who are ruled over will one day, if they will submit themselves to Jesus, rule and reign with him. If you're a note taker, the covenant of redemption, Jesus promises to redeem, heal, and empower the broken and bless the next generation of faithful people through the redeemed, through us, if we will be redeemed. The power of the redeemed is the Holy Spirit, not their might or earthly position. We're in an election year, crazy as it may be with coronavirus, different as it is with all the things going on in the world. But we're in this place where the world around us, the nation around, and really, I, when I say the world around us, mostly for what I'm saying is the nation we live in, that the media that we see and the social media posts and the people around us, the community that we're in, the nation that we're in, is trying to drive us into two camps. One that will can't vote for this person and one that will vote for this person. And many of them will co-opt passages of scripture in order to try and make it seem like they represent Jesus when neither system, neither party does. That both are broken, both are flawed, and both see human solutions to spiritual unrest. And we, the church, need to be different than that. We need to see beyond that. And we need to we need to embrace that covenant that Jesus, that promise, that security that Jesus provides and says, listen, I will redeem you. I will take what was trash, what was worthless, what was tossed aside, and I will make it new and usable, and I will set you in my kingdom, and I will use you for my good, for my glory. That Jesus makes that promise with us, with any who will be redeemed, with any who will come and surrender themselves and stop trusting in the world around us and allow God to lead. Jesus promises redemption. And through the redeemed, Jesus promises change, transformation, hope, justice, righteousness. Verse 10, Jesus says, I will re greatly rejoice in the Lord, meaning God. My soul shall exult in my God. For he, God, has clothed me, Jesus, with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We get a lot of Jesus speaking in Isaiah prophetically as God is giving his prophet Isaiah. Remember, a prophet is someone who speaks God's word with God's authority, typically to God's people. Not always, but typically to God's people. In this case, for sure, to God's people. And that word comes out as, here is what Jesus is, and here is what Jesus will do. Here is what Jesus will say and what Jesus will accomplish. Here's the kingdom that Jesus will inaugurate. 
that one day soon will be consummated and complete. And Jesus says, listen, I will greatly rejoice in God. He has dressed me in salvation. Salvation is defined as, as preservation or deliverance from this world. That we are preserved or delivered from harm or ruin, from the things that have ensnared all of us. I was listening to somebody online this morning, and he says, all of us that are listening here, this pastor uh, that I know, said, all of, these, all of you that are here listening to this, he says, you've left what doesn't work for the only thing that works. You've, you've left the world for Jesus. He says, if it was working before, you would have never come to Jesus. But because it doesn't work, you've come to Christ who does. You see, the only solution that we have, and he had, his message was completely in a different direction than ours today, but the truths are the same, that what we have works. But instead of embracing what we have, and instead of re embracing a redeemer, a king over a kingdom, and living faithfully in that kingdom, what we do is we keep running back to the kingdom that doesn't work. We keep running back to human solutions, and human authority, and human legislation, and human trying to get the morals that maybe we want to see in our culture legislated in. But human solutions will never fix this deeply embedded spiritual brokenness that we have. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is what works. Jesus is the only thing that works. Jesus is the only one who has God become flesh. Jesus is the only one who entered into our story, entered into human history, because humanity couldn't enter back into God's story without him. Because we had been discarded because of our sin and brokenness. We had thrown ourselves away because of our separation from God. But Jesus enters into our story and he lives the life that we're called to live. He lives a life apart from sin. He lives a life of the kingdom here on earth as God has called us to. Distinctly and differently than the world around him. And those who saw him knew there's something different about Jesus. And so Jesus lived a sinless life, and then he died the death that he died in our place. That he died a vicarious death, a death we deserve, that he took in our place. And as they laid him in the ground, our sin, if we are followers of Jesus, our sin was covered. And as he rose from the grave three days later, new life is given to us. As he ascended back to his throne, all who are in Christ now are promised his spirit that we're empowered by Jesus. And that empowering, that empowering causes us to be distinct and to be different. It changes our life. It doesn't just stop some of the bad things and kind of keep us the same. It empowers us to live incredibly different lives. And then it gives us a hope that Jesus, as promised, will return just as he promised to die and to, be rose, uh, and to raise from the dead and kept his promise before he ascended, he promised to return. We know at his return, the consummation of all things. The kingdom now reigns. But we live in the in-between and the now and the not yet. We live right now where his kingdom is and not yet where it reigns fully. We get to be them in between. We get to be the kingdom alive right now that the world can see. We get to be the hope of all the nations. I said this a week or two ago, and I was just talking about this with our, our band and our tech volunteers, just a handful of us here this morning, about how I was on a prayer call with some global pastors, uh, some in Africa, some in Australia or, or uh, New Zealand, some in 
uh, Europe, Germany to be specific, so in Canada and then me here in the US. And we were a part of a larger group that would break off into small groups, and this larger group covered the entirety of the globe. And as we broke off into this, oh, and one from Latin America, as we broke off into this, the other nations, developed nations, prosperous nations said, we look to the US because the US is blessed, and we look for the US to lead. And we were talking about things like racial injustice and, and coronavirus and the things that are going on globally right now. And I was amazed to hear that people look to us still. It's not because of our political system. Now, yes, it is because of the freedoms that we've got. We're a unique nation. It is because of the justice system that is probably better than any other, though it's flawed, right? We can agree that it's broken. We can also agree that I don't know of a better one. Our healthcare system is good, yet it's got brokenness in it. But as I heard this, I thought of the role of the church in America and where are we in our role in America? And, and, and I would just honestly answer that we look like the rest of the world around us. And Jesus is saying, listen, I've given you such a platform, such a place, that if you will deny yourself, if you'll quit trusting in the world around you, like every single generation before you, who I've called all of them to repentance, and some did and some didn't, but if you'll stop trusting in human solutions, in human authority, in human power, I will use you. If you will learn to trust me and lay down everything for me, I will use you. I will create a new future from you. Verse 11 says, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Listen, I want to read this again. Here is what the gospel produces in us, and here's other people, the nation saying it. He says this, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, as the ground grows food, as the garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so to the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Here's what God says the, the gospel will accomplish. In it. Here's what Jesus says, my work on the cross, my work emptying the grave, my work living a sinless life, my promise reaching. Here's what the gospel does for you. Here, when you're empowered by my spirit, here's what will be accomplished. I will cause things to grow. I will cause righteousness and justice to grow up among you. Here's what he doesn't say. I'm going to save you for eternity. Now you fix your own problems. You fix the world around you. You trust the world around you. You look and talk and act and speak like everybody around you. No, he says, I'll make you a new people. I will empower you. Generations Church, if you've been around for any amount of time, you know this verse. I love this verse. Ezekiel 36 says this, God speaking, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, notice the capital, the change, I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here's what God says. When I save you, when I take you from non-believer to believer, when I call you my own and adopt you into my family, the very grace that you respond to when you come to faith, when I do that, what I do is I take out your hard heart, your heart of stone, a, a heart that can't beat for God, and I give you a new heart. I give you a heart of flesh, one that can beat for God. He says, but I don't stop there. I also put my spirit in you. The next verse says, I cleanse you from all your idolatry, but I put my spirit in you. I empower you. I cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to obey my commands. I cause that, God says. 
See, as Christians, we, we think that the gospel is something that introduces us to Jesus, but then after we meet Jesus, after we become a Christian, then what we do is try really hard and white-knuckle it until the end of our life to be a better people or to do the right things. God says, no, all you do is learn how to submit to me. All you do is lay down yourself, and I empower the change. I grow righteousness. I cause it to sprout up. Just like I cause growth on the earth, I cause the growth in you. I put my spirit in you. I will cause you to walk in my ways. I will cause you to be careful and obey my commands, God says. Isaiah 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silence. Zion is this image of God's people living as God has called them to. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, Jesus says. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. That's God's people here on earth. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings of your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Jesus says he will not keep silent until the nations see your righteousness and kings see your glory. Not what we look like today. I want the world to see Jesus when he sees Generations Church. When, he sees, when people see me, I want them to see Jesus. I don't want them to see a better version of Jeff. I don't want them to see a better version of what I once was, although I hope they see a better version of what I once was. But I hope they know that's Jesus and not me. I'm not any better. I'm not good. But Jesus is good. Jesus is better. Jesus is best. And when they see me, I want people to see Jesus. And when they think they see me and they ask, I want to tell them about Jesus. I want to live the life that causes people to ask why it's different. I want to treat the world differently. I want to follow the world. Well, I don't want to follow the world. I want to live in the world differently. That those who are around me will ask why I'm not polarized into these camps or why I don't pick a team here, why I'm not fighting for this human solution, but rather why I seem to live at peace even under trial. That I tend to have joy even in hardship. Why I have hope when things look somewhat hopeless around us. So that I can just answer simply with the story of Jesus, with his life and his death and his resurrection, with his hope. And that they might, by his spirit, be transformed and follow him. Jesus says, I will do this in you. I will not keep silent until the nations see your righteousness and kings see your glory. I will not stop calling you to change, Jesus says, until the world can see me through you. Until when they look at you, they see me. I won't stop. Jesus says, so I'm going to continue to call out, continue to call you to what is right, and what is holy, and what is true, and what is Jesus. Verse 3, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Listen, our usefulness comes when we are in the hand of God. It's, it's not when we are changed people in our own strength. It's when we're in the hand of God, we become useful for the kingdom. He says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. When we are in God's hands, we are useful. Verse 4, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights you, and your Lord shall be married, and your land shall be married, excuse me. 
For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He's using this image of, uh, of desolation and barren and alone. He's saying that's who you are apart from Christ, but, but I bring you and I give you a family, I give you a future, I give you a hope, I give you fruitfulness and joy. What would it look like if generations could be used by God as a place of revival? Remember, we've defined revival as God's power, God's presence, God's leading, right? That God in us, guiding us, making us distinctly different so that the world can see him through us. What would it look like if generations became that place where people who feel lifeless can find purpose, where people who are hurting can find joy, when people who are weak can find strength, when people who are alone can find a family, when people who are at the end of their rope, who have nothing to look forward to can find joy and wholeness in Christ. Generations Church, that's my prayer for us, that many would come to know Jesus through us, that we would live in such a way so different from the world around us that people will see Jesus and they'll ask those questions and we'll have the equipping and opportunity to answer those questions, that we will be a people who can point to Jesus and talk about Jesus as our only hope and our only salvation. What Isaiah gives us, and here's our next slide, is a prophetic look at the church Jesus paints a picture of providing wholeness to people who have nothing, uniting people to God and each other through the church and giving them a purpose for their lives that will exist eternally. Tonight, we're going to close up what I said, our, our small group series that we did through Rooted. We had a hundred and something people do this. Uh, it was begun as a 10-week series, and we added just a little bit in it. In the last 12 weeks or so um, since Easter, right after Easter, we began this. We're going to wrap this up tonight, and one of the things that, that Rooted uses is it talks about connecting ourselves with God, uh, our purpose, and the church. God, the church, and our purpose, excuse me. That we would connect with God, that we would connect with our local church, and that we would connect with our purpose, what we are here to do, and how we are to live that out for God. Isaiah talks about that as he talks about how we are to live and who we can become. Verse 6, it says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set my watchmen. Now, watchmen are people who pray, prayers, right? Those who pray a lot. And, and here's, what, here's what Jesus is saying to us as his church. Like, as he moves and begins to wrap up this message, here's what he says, and I'll give it to you in verse 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen, people that pray, all the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Don't stop, he says. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise of the earth. He says, I have set people to pray. If I were to give you one of the hardest struggles in the church, and I don't mean today, I just mean throughout my, my, my season of ministry. Over the last almost two decades of ministry, one of the greatest struggles we have is, is calling people to come together for prayer. That people are not energized to come and pray corporately together. And what that really tells us is people aren't very comfortable with prayer. They don't understand prayer very well. Or they don't really appreciate coming together as a body, as a family to pray together. And in that, I begin to ask questions about prayer at home. Like, 
What do our prayer lives look like if we don't value prayer together? As God calls us to come together and pray and pray for our church and pray for our world, and he says, when two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of you, then I'm more powerful and I'm palatable when you gather together to pray, whether that be gathering together digitally, like we do Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning at 7 a.m., look on our e-blast or on our app to figure out how to get onto that. But we gather together to pray because God says the solution What I want to do is going to come through prayer. When the church rises in prayer, the outcomes will be different. When the church rises up and becomes prayers, those who pray, watchmen who pray night and day, then I will begin to transform the church and the world around you, that you will be useful, that you will be empowered, that you will be distinct, you'll be different. So here's God's plan, a lot more prayer. One of the biggest needs in the church today is a resurgence of prayer. People today not only trust in worldly solutions, but we trust in a worldly or human power. We trust in our ability to get through today rather than depending upon prayer so that Jesus will guide us through today. We we think that we can with strategies and systems and plans and all these other things that we can become better Christians rather than gathering together to pray, to pray for our church, to pray for ourselves, to pray for one another, to pray for the sick, to pray for the broken, to pray for the community, to pray for the world that we live in, to pray for our leaders, those whom we agree with and those whom we disagree with. God is calling us to prayer. I'm going to close with these three things that we as a church need to do in order to line ourselves up with Isaiah 61 and 62. The first one, we need to be devoted to prayer. The church needs to be devoted to prayer together as well as individually, corporate as well as individual. Acts 6.4 says we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Our dependence must become on God's power and not our own. When we seek God in prayer regularly, consistently, with a regular rhythm of prayer, when we gather together to pray as well as pray on our own, we begin to seek God for the power, his power, not our own. The next one is live what we are told. The church needs to become people who actually do the things we are called to do. James 1 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Action is what Jesus desires, not just passive agreement. We don't just get to gather together and go, yeah, that's right. We told, that's totally correct. Yes. Yay, Jesus. And then not act. We must pray. We must act. The church must become doers of the word and not hearers only, as James said 2,000 years ago. And finally, trusting in God. The church needs to begin trusting in God's solutions over and above all human solutions. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Our political and legislative solutions can't change the human heart. You can change the rules, but you cannot change the human heart. Only God can change a heart. Remember, he says in Ezekiel, I will take from you a heart of stone, a heart of that is hardened and cannot follow God. And I will give you a heart of flesh, one that can beat for God, and I will fill you with my spirit, and I will cause you to change. We need to begin to seek spiritual solutions, not human solutions. We can't legislate the change of a heart, and that's where everything resides. Our hearts must change. Jesus alone can change our hearts. Will you pray with me? Jesus, as we gather, we we proclaim struggles we all have. 
These are not unique to us. They are true all around the world. They are true all across our country. They are, they are true here, and they are true far away. We trust in human solutions. We forget how valuable it is to pray with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We forget that we are a family of families, that we are a spiritual body, and that there is power in coming together. There is power in meeting, even if it's digitally, to gather together and pray and see our brothers and sisters and hear their hearts and lift up our voices to God and, 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 to, and to agree with one another as we pray to you. We see the scenes in Scripture where the church is gathered together to pray and fast, and God, your Holy Spirit falls like Pentecost. Or you speak like in Acts 13 and give Paul and Barnabas a future, a vision, a mission. We, we, we miss those things and we see them. We see people gather to pray as well as praying individually. And we see you meet with them. And Jesus, we need that. We need your voice to speak and we need your spirit to empower so that we can accomplish what God our Father has called us to. Let us be your church. Let us be a distinct people, a people that are called out of this world, transformed by the gospel through your Holy Spirit and empowered to live different, distinct, changed, transformed lives in the world around us so that people might see you, that we might offer the peace, the wholeness, the healing, the redemption that is found in you alone. So Jesus, it's in your name we pray, amen.